Take hold of your life, take charge of tomorrow, and step into the world of your dreams. Welcome to the Very Brave Podcast with Rachel Evans. Hello again, and thank you so much for joining me here at the Very Brave Podcast. Hope that you've had a wonderful week where you've overcome some fear, you've taken some courageous steps forward that in a few months' time you might turn around and reflect were actually really brave. As usual, there's always brave moves going on around here at Brave Media Network and at The Real Rachel. And one of those brave moves actually came about in a VIP day that I was hosting with a client. And we were sat in this most amazing hotel room on the Gold Coast and we were having a really in-depth conversation and it came up about how we need to be the CEO of our own lives if we are actually going to succeed in our career and in our businesses. So I want you to have a think today about whether or not you're actually taking charge or whether the conditions of your own life, so that you're a mother, that you're a wife, that you're an employee, that you have employees, whether those things are taking over and you're actually letting those things take away the time that you could otherwise be using to fuel you. So your business life, for instance, will be a direct reflection of what's going on inside your brain and what's going on in your personal life. So I always recommend that you get three things sorted out when it comes to being the CEO of your own life. And the first of those is your money. You've got to sort your money stories out and you've got to put structure around your money. No money is going to flow to you in abundance if you don't have structure around it and can show that you're going to look after it, basically. Sounds a bit woo, but it's true. The next thing that you need to have in place to be the CEO of your own life is boundaries. You need to recognize who the people are that fill you up and when there are people around you that take energy from you and you need to be able to limit your time with those people and make it really clear to them. Learn how to say no. Uh, No is a complete sentence is one of my favorite sayings. And the third thing that you need to take care of when you are talking about being the CEO of your own life is your integrity. So if you are actually out of alignment with your own values, that's going to show. It's going to show up in your career. It's going to show up in your business. So have a think about the things that are most important to you and then see if you're in alignment with those in your everyday life. Now, speaking about being CEOs, let's talk about all things Wendy McCarthy. I did a little happy dance when Wendy responded to me that she was able to come on the podcast. I am a fangirl of Wendy's and this is like a dream come true for me to be able to speak with her. And I know that you're going to enjoy this episode as well. Wendy talks about her long, long career in advocacy and she's actually one of Australia's original feminists 
in the first wave in the late 60s. This lady is responsible for many of the freedoms that we're able to enjoy as women today. And I know that you're going to get a huge kick out of her story. So listen in now, learn about how she's had an amazing career on the outskirts of government, being able to work with both sides of government because she's remained nonpartisan. And listen to her stories about her being a working mum when it wasn't fashionable to do so, being told that once she had children, she wouldn't be able to have a full-time job and what she campaigned for in order to end those conditions so that she paved the way for the rest of us to come through. Enjoy the episode. Need a daily reminder to be brave? Sign up to 365 Days of Brave and get a daily brave message now. Go to bravemedianetwork.com. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to a remarkable and inspiring Australian, Wendy McCarthy. Wendy, hello. Hello, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Can you please tell our Very Brave podcast listeners a little bit about you? I think I'm brave being 81 and putting myself out in the public arena at the moment. I came home (laughs) from four days away last week and thought, oh, my God, I'm feeling my age. But I'm a person who has had a long life and I've had a lot of different careers and a lot of different opportunities and I've really come back into the public space quite a lot in the last year because of writing this book, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, because I wanted to write stories for women who hit 60 and think it's all over. Mm. And we were all conditioned to do that as professional women teachers. You know, teachers, women teachers resigned at 50 or 55 when the age has gone up. But I think we forget that these could be our best years. They've certainly been very wonderful years for me, the last 21 years. And I thought we have to keep pushing the barriers. So I am someone who's quite determined when I decide I need to be. And, you know, I'm a mother and a grandmother and... Once a teacher, but in a sense, a teacher is always a teacher, you know, just different classrooms. And I'm a quintessentially Australian country girl who has found a way to be other things as well throughout life and be a good citizen. And I've always been engaged as a citizen. And you mentioned that you were a teacher, but you've also been at the forefront of so many movements, both feminist movements, but also movements and organisations that have played a, a vital role in the in the building of who we are today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Look, I was born in a country town, Orange, and my father was in the war and my mother was 18 years old and probably wasn't planning to have a child quite then. And I think that, um, and she didn't have another one for four years, which was probably a good thing. So I was an only child and, you know, the focus was on me. And so I had a very loving introduction to life as an only child for the first four years of life until my brother arrived. And I also had a preschool education, which is quite remarkable that you think that I could have had one then. You know, I had a year of preschool. We went to live in the country when my father got a um, soldier settlement block and I went to a little bush school. And so I had my life until 11 pretty much as living in remote or country um, town, New South Wales, Uh, a lot of time on my own and a lot of time to be 
to entertain myself. I mean, in my school, there was never more than one other person in my class and there are only 25 people in the whole school. So I grew close to the teacher in both of, in those matters and although I would never have dared to think of myself as a teacher, I, I never thought about what I'd be then, I do know, can see looking back, that I liked what teachers did. I liked that teachers encouraged and nurtured and had safe places for children. And just giving a grandparent speech the other day to my little grandchildren's school, I said to them, you know, grandparents are a bit like teachers. They're safe places. They're places for wisdom and experience and they're places for safety and security for children. And I certainly had that from a school. From every time I went to a school, I had that. And then when I went to a secondary school where I was a boarder in a country town and going to the local high school, I also had that sort of security. So when I got a scholarship to university to be a teacher, I took it and it gave me four years at university. So I spent the next four years being a really happy teacher, three years in Sydney and then two years in London and then a year in Pittsburgh. And it never occurred to me that I would be anything else. But I have always been an inveterate reader. And, of course, that's a lot because in the little one-teacher school, the teacher couldn't look after everyone. So he'd mostly say, Wendy, you can go and sit in the corner and read a book or you can, you know, you can listen to ABC Radio or School of the Air or something or Mind the Little Ones. So I had developing in front of me that kind of role of looking after people, reading, listening to people. So I think I became that sort of a teacher myself. And when I came back here and decided that I wanted to continue to teach, I found out that uh, Australia wasn't quite as I'd fantasised about it from the time that I was away. Actually, until then, I'd had a dream run. But the dream run stopped when I said I wanted to teach and I foolishly told the clerk that I was pregnant, like like five minutes pregnant. (laughs) And he said, oh, no, surely not. Well, you won't be able to teach, you know, you're not going to leave your baby, are you? Well, I hadn't actually visualised a baby yet. I was just pregnant, you know, and I thought, yes, I want to come back to to work. And he said, oh, no, he said, I I don't think that's a good idea. I think probably, you know, probably my age, 27 at the time, 26. And I I tried to go back. I went back for a couple of years part-time while I had, for eight years I had three children under five, did a lot of work in the community, and my awareness of social justice and fairness was really challenged at that time because it wasn't just enough to be a nice woman, a good wife, a potential mother and a teacher. There were things that needed to be done. And all our awareness was raised by the war in Vietnam and and, and Australia was changing. The world was changing rapidly and I was reading all this feminist literature and so the first thing, you know, that, that I realised is that I could only be a casual teacher and I would start at the same pay rate as I'd started nine years before. And that was fairly shocking. And I guess I gathered these sorts of moments as I went and then I did get some casual work and then I tried to be a part-time teacher and state education, which I am passionate about, couldn't accommodate me, you know. They'd send me. They'd say, "Yes, you can. If you can be at 
Uh, one was Bankstown at nine o'clock. They rang me at eight. I lived in North Sydney. Could I be at Bankstown at nine o'clock? Well, what was I going to do with my baby and how was I going to get there? Did they assume a car? What was I going to teach? It would be babysitting teaching and that's not what I want to do. So I was toughening up and learning to think about systems at the time. And to be a serious feminist or someone in, who's in the wants change to occur, you have to learn to manage the system. The personal political story, which is the story of my life, is I might, it, it, my actions might have been instigated by a personal dilemma. But the political response is about systems. So that's why I can write 400 pages about myself and know that my mother would be saying, don't be so shameless in self-promotion because it's actually strategic to find other people who care about the same things as you mm. and who will join you in helping to change. So my first changes were getting fathers present at birth. Um, we wanted to have be together when our first baby was born and any subsequent children, as in the end we were. But the rules were no husbands in the labour ward then. Anyway, my obstetrician said, go and talk to these people. They're trying to do that too. So I met a whole lot of people I would never met socially. I mean, I wouldn't have met them as a wife. Mm. It's what you were destined to do. That was meant to be a social group. And that changed everything. So here were all these people I'd never met who came from suburbs I didn't know, not that I knew much about Sydney really, um, and... They wanted to do the same things as me. And that's a wonderful click moment. You go, oh, my God, someone else has thought about that. And like us, they'd been travelling, you know, a lot of them had been travelling around the world. And if you lived in London and, and the US at that time, you realise that how women fitted into society were completely different. What, what that was the Australian construct was quite different. And we were a long way behind exploring opportunities for women's independence and leadership. Anyway, we won the battle to get parents present at birth. My husband didn't faint, and mm -hmm. uh, which was they, they kind of tell you things that you're going to do. And it's the beginning of being told not what you can do, but what you can't do. Mm. And I suddenly found in myself a voice that enabled me I guess in the definition of this program, to be brave, but to find my voice to speak up for the things that I cared about and I knew that many other people cared about. And sometimes, you know, when we'd have a meeting, they'd say, well, you can talk about that because you like it. And it was mostly because I'd been a teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, As a teacher, you know how to listen, how to acquire research information, how to synthesise it and then executed or promoted. And that skill has done me very well through life. So I think, and I think when you win something, it's incredibly liberating. When I think about it, basically the maternity hospitals in New South Wales, and starting with Sydney, where the major ones were, had to completely change the way they enabled women to birth. And when they'd say, oh, you know, it's never been done before and it's not done like this, you know, we know that's a lie. And where there are lies and there are secrets and where there are secrets, there are lies. And so 
It's a bit like walking past the 12-year-old boy in my country town when he said to me, anyway, your father's a drunk. And I said so. And I only can see now that I was not allowing him to shame me. He wanted me to, to cry and he was a bully and he wanted to cry and me to cry and behave in a different way. And I just said so and kept walking. And he never raised it with me again. Mm. And my father was a drunk and he or an alcoholic, whatever words we want to use, and when he was drunk, he was drunk. I kind of knew that if I accepted the definition of being the daughter of a drunk, my life could have been different. And my mother fiercely resisted, even in spite of all evidence that we were poor. She said, no, we'd, we'd just walk it by. God knows how we did. But anyway, we did, and we're here to tell the tale. So coming back to the time that childbirth education, that became part of my life story then about changing the rules about abortion and access to contraception. Because in a way, I ticked the education box, and now I was looking at reproductive rights. Not what we, what we called it at the time, but that's what we would say now. And those are the pillars of women's life. The women's lives cannot be as they want them to be unless they can control their reproductive systems and manage them the way they want to and they have an education. So I started on that and I joined abortion law reform and and the childbirth education people wanted me to be their nominee there. And people say, oh, why would you like to think, why would you believe in abortion when you're having a baby or you're having babies? Because it's about choice. It's not about sentimentality. That's a beautiful part of it. But it is about the choice to decide whether, when, or at all, you will have a child. And if you have those choices, you'll be a better engaged citizen because you'll be able to manage your life in a more predictable way. And that gives us huge advantages over other people. The brave toil to seek a life beyond. Have you summoned the strength to move beyond the mediocre? We're all ears. We'd love to hear your story of bravery and share it with our community. Reach out to support at bravemedianetwork.com. Wendy, when you reflect back on these moments where you meet these other people who have been thinking about the same things as you and you start working on some of these issues, especially abortion and reproductive rights. Did you think at the time, wow, like we're we're being really brave here by stepping out? Like was it a conscious thing or you were more driven by this innate understanding that the work had to be done? Look, I don't think I was scared of it. I think I knew it aroused social disapproval from many places. But I saw those places like the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church the high Anglican church in Sydney, I saw those people as so resistant to change and unable to hear the voices of women that that gave me enough confidence not to be dissuaded to what I saw was a need. Because I, although I was not talking about it at the time, I had had a, a, a criminal, illegal termination of pregnancy before I was married. And I never ever talked to, I just pretended, I think in a way I pretended it hadn't happened. Gordon and I talked about it because, you know, it was before we were married 
Um, but I think it was a, a time of it wasn't anyone else's business. It happened. That was the resolution. But, you know, it was pretty ugly at one level. You know, you don't like to see the cop cars when you're going to an obscure suburb in Sydney patrolling and you know, well, you, you probably in a way you do, but you don't know whether they're benign cop cars or ones that are coming to, you know, arrest you. And I knew I didn't want that to happen to anyone else. And the so many like-minded women in the early feminist movement, of course, had had terminations. I did know it was a brave thing to put my name on a list with 79 other women saying, daring the police in a way to come and arrest us because we had had illegal abortions mm. and not one of us was approached by the police. And that's when I understood that if we'd been poor or not educated and not been able to put our case, they were the women who were being, you know, taken down to the cop shop, sometimes bleeding, taken off the table. And I just thought that was so outrageous that it overrode any anxiety or fear about what would happen to me. And, you know, my husband always had my back. You know, sometimes you're just lucky if you make, it's like it's a whole lot of things, chemistry, etc. but it, it sounds so almost condescending. But, you know, I do say, young women, you find a partner, find a good partner. That's part of life's journey, finding a partner. We, we all long to have partners and happy relationships. We don't always get it right. But if you can find someone who has your back and whose back you have, it's a much more solid platform for a life together and a life as parents than many other sorts of liaisons. So I, I think that when that happened, that made us, made us even more brave and then we started really agitating for changing the law around abortion. There was a court case then which gave us a common law capacity, a Medibank number for abortion. And 50 years later, in 2019, we were doing it again. We were talking about abortion. That was remarkable. And most of us who were there for the first round were still there. Mm. And when younger women said, but, you know, we, we know we know people who get abortions, it's okay. And I said, no, the fact is the law says it's a criminal act so that both the woman and the provider can be put in jail for 10 years. And if you look at Trump, and that brings me to the other part of the story, if you don't keep your eye on the game, you'll get lost. So if you look at Trump and you see what's happening in America, it could happen here. Because what's a common law way that we are dealing with this? That can be changed. Another law can be overrided. Mm. So what changes is the act. And it's much harder to get an act changed, especially when it's been there since, you know, 1880. That was the that was the moment, and 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 that was a very strategic campaign, and it was, and we were much more mature women then, and we had you know some women supporting us, but in a way I felt that it was kind of grandmother's business really, to get that done and finished, so that young women would not have to do it. Now you know we, it, it it's not beyond the capacity of a government to create a new law. But at the moment, there is no criminality associated 
with termination of pregnancy. It is now a health issue, which is exactly what it should be. And, and, that's, and that's in New South Wales, isn't it's, it? It's the whole of Australia about? now other right. than about Mike, the case that I was leading was in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. The only place it's not cl- quite clear yet is Western Australia, which is mm-hmm. having a revision of, of thinking about their laws. So that it's probably pretty close to being done now as we speak. But that's for the whole of Australia. And, and that is a massive win for women. And when you look at what's happened in America with Roe v. Wade, American women relied on the Supreme Court and relied on Hillary being elected, mm. be able to populate the court, and in a way even that Obama couldn't, and they have lost the game. And the the, the ramifications of Roe v. Wade, we, it's a horror story every day you open the paper, American newspapers, but it's also a horror story because Americans provide so much overseas aid. And now overseas aid will not be given to any countries that permit terminations of pregnancy. Now, the roll-on and knock-on effect of this is beyond belief. And I keep saying to young people, I know you don't all want to read newspapers, but you do need to keep your eye on your human rights. Mm. And to remember, they're hard-fought, hard-won, and easily lost if you take your eye off the game. And that's sort of my enduring message to those young women and their partners. And I have to say that I was shocked when I was reading in the book. I I was unaware that we were still fighting that fight uh, up until 2019. I never had to access abortion services, so I guess it wasn't something that I'd come up against. So in light of what's going on and with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, what is it that we do, my generation, now that, uh, you know, we're in this situation where, you know, America did take their eyes off the ball? What is it that, apart from reading the newspapers, like what's the real, you know, stuff on the ground that we need to do? Well, I think at the moment it's around access. As soon as access starts to dry up, you've got to look at why that is happening. So there's a rise of conscientious objectors who say, a nurse says, no, I'm not prepared to be part of that procedure. Now, the duty of a nurse is to preserve life, as it is for a doctor. And if you take that, if, if, if it's a health procedure, if you can't do it, you should refer it to someone else. But we are seeing, I mean, in rural areas, there's um, access is diminished. I mean, we do have a medical abortion by taking the morning after pill, so-called, and there's a rise in in that as a service. But we still do have a, a, a you know, we, there is still a need for surgical procedures in many cases, not no, in some cases. And so the lack of access is clear and, you know, whole country towns can say, we don't want that. You have a Catholic doctor who refuses to discuss that with a patient. The response from women mostly is to go interstate. And when we were in 2019, I was shocked by how many women travelled interstate to get the service. Mm. And, and, and then and, and I have family around Tamworth and, and, and I have nurse, we have nurses in our family, gorgeous nurses. And I was shocked to find people who were coming from driving from Broken Hill to Tamworth to get a service. Well, a young mother 
and and often they already have a child. They just can't afford a second one or for whatever reasons. But having to mind a baby, disappear without telling anyone what she's doing, and a long drive in a car, have a termination of pregnancy return. I mean, it is barbaric. Mm. It is a health procedure, and we know that the best families in the world are those who actually children are wanted and loved and given the first chance in life and that mothers are healthy when the babies are born. So a woman who's had, say, five pregnancies in six years, that's a tough gig. Mm. And, and, and in some parts of our population, it's not unusual for women to have four and five babies, although overall the birth rate's lower. And those women need support. Um, culturally, they are happy to do that and they may not want to use contraception. It's not a good idea to use abortion as contraception. It's far healthier to do the prevention rather than the subsequent reaction. I guess in some ways we can look at it and think that we've come so far, but then you describe you know, someone having to drive from Broken Hill to Tamworth, you know, for those listening who don't grasp the enormity of that, that is many, many hundreds of kilometres, if not yeah. a thousand kilometres or more. Yeah, And on like very ordinary roads. Yeah. It's, it's like we haven't come very far at all. Mm. No, but we must never lose sight of the fact that we have come far mm. and, and, and remember that even when those things change, it just means you just have to keep on keeping on. Mm. Or as my friend Susan Ryan would say, keep on going. Yes. <laughs> Get brave. Let Rachel inspire you to go deeper and come out blazing. Receive a free masterclass now. Go to go.bravemedianetwork.com slash masterclass. Another one of the enduring themes through the book for me was uh, your interaction with politics and how you seemed to remain unaffiliated with any particular political party, which for me was, it was almost like a relief. Like you gave me permission uh, yes. to release myself from this pressure that I feel to actually declare where my beliefs lie and, and that that must be with a political party. Would you think that that has actually increased the level of success you've had working with successive governments? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because people know I'm, you know, my tribe's female, that's who I'm there for, and they're and, and where, where women are, children are, and they're the people I'm, I care the most about. And I know that for women to be an active political party member is pretty challenging. And also, in some ways, we don't always define our political thinking until we're a bit more mature. My first look inside a political party was the Labor Party in about the, uh, I was about 28. I remember someone said, let's go to a Labor Party meeting when I was, we formed a women's electoral lobby, which was, you know, independent. We went to this meeting and all these blokes sat around and they all seemed incredibly old to me. They met every Friday night at six. They drank a lot and they ate shocking food. And I thought, why would I want to go to a meeting like that with people I really don't like? I'd like to think I shared their vision, but, you know, what? I, all the rest gets in the way of it. 
I go to a women's meeting where we're talking about the things that matter to us. Well, we might have a drink and food. Both the drink and the food will be better. <laughs> and not we won't consume as much. But we're also really focused on what we want to do. This was just like an old boys club, which, in fact, of course, it was. Yeah. And... You know, and, and I, it's, and I don't want. Well, I don't want to be owned. You know, I don't like wearing name tags around myself at the conference. Not because I think I'm so important that anyone will speak to me or recognise me, but just because that sort of sense of being named and identified is something I'm not comfortable with. I'm very happy with, a, you know, being a feminist activist. I'm happy to be a writer and a company director. But they're all tasks, and primarily I'm a woman who likes to think there is justice, social justice and fairness for everyone in the community, and that's what I like to do. And And I approach it in a lot of ways, and it means, means I can take a risk as well. When I learned to say yes to opportunity and work out how to do it later, that was a big breakthrough, that I didn't have to go and do a PhD to be a company director because mm. I don't know what company directors did on a board that I knew nothing about. But, you know, there are themes that remain the same and it's like the classroom, you know, you have to do your homework, you have to think about how, you have to think about why, you have to think about when and those things are the strategic things and you have to take risk for not only excitement but you also, if someone asks you to be on the board, and I didn't understand this for quite a long time in my life, it wasn't because they thought you were cute or pretty or anything. They, it was because they thought you could do the job. And so instead of, you know, the girl response is, oh, look, you know, better to give it to Harry or someone else because, you know, he's already been doing that. If you're trying to do change, you don't want someone who's doing the same thing every day. Mm. And so blokes who are asking us to come and join them like a health minister in my case or an education minister who said get, either get it, learn to get work inside the tent or you'll stay outside for the rest of your life. And I took that very seriously and I rang him back the next day and said, okay, I'll do it. And I said, I don't think I know anything about higher education. He said, have you been to university? That's how much research he'd done on me. <laughs> and I said, yes. He said, well, you know something about higher education? What's your problem? Mm. That's the you know that's another moment when you think actually he just got an ordinary degree the same as me, mm. so I don't have to go and prep this. I have to learn on the job and realise if they think I can do it, they're going to support me. They're not asking me there to humiliate me and bring their organisation down. We sometimes don't understand that, and I think that was another. Um like aha moment for me reading the book as well. I had had really bad like community level board experiences and I had written that off completely as uh, an option for me. And if I was going to do it, it was certainly not going to be until much later down the track, perhaps when I'd stopped working in my business altogether. But mm -hmm it really inspired me to look at the opportunities that might be out there right now and where I could contribute to other things. And I think that many women think that sitting on boards, certainly at the level that you've been on them, is beyond them. And it's not. Mm. You know, when you get on there, you realise you're just sitting with people just like you, really, pretty much. I mean, they might be black or male or Islamic or Muslims or whatever. It doesn't matter. The fact is 
You're all engaged together collectively in an endeavour to perform a task for the community and as much as possible the board should look, look like the community it serves. Mm. That's you, me, our friends. And, and once you get over that, you know, it, again, it's not about you. It's about the system and how you can work in the system to do the things you want to do. And put your hand up, Rachel. Yes. <laughs> yes, I will. So one final question, uh, if I can ask you, Wendy. There's been so many things that you've shared just with us today, brave moments across your entire lifetime, but I'm sure even at 81 uh, there might be a few other things that we might determine uh, as brave moments. Is there something that you're working on at the moment that you can share with us that might be a little bit brave? Yes. I'm, I'm spending quite a bit of time at both a board level and a family level thinking about ageing because I'm 81, I need to think about it. And at a board level it's really interesting because I'm sitting on a board with mostly men and they have a view about aged care and so on. And one of them changed my mind quite a lot about it a couple of days ago by saying most people want some sort of residential care. The issue is not about whether residential care is a good idea, it's about the quality of residential care and the loneliness that can come with being a single person when you've raised a family. Like my sisters and I both say, you know, we still cook as though we're feeding the family, which is a ridiculous thing to do. But you get into habits, you know, there's so many tomatoes and so many everything else. And then you think you're throwing stuff out. So I think I want to help define how we age mm. and, and, and with a, a sense of safety and it's physical safety um, and it's psychological safety. And my friend Kay Patterson, who's the aged care commissioner, has disclosed some most shocking things about elder abuse. I think that's where I'm going at the moment to support her and, and do those things and to think about well, you know, the shocking fact is that a woman of 60 is the face of poverty today. Mm. She's homeless, probably got no super. Yep. She once was a wife and a mother and she's alone. I think that's a terrible indictment of our society. Yeah. So that for me I think is where I'm finding my way in the next couple of years. Going off your track record so far, I know that whatever you're going to be turning your attention to is going to benefit all of us uh, for the years to come. So I'll say thank you in advance. And uh, <laughs> and uh, also thank you for joining me on the Very Brave podcast today. It's been my absolute honour and privilege to be able to have this discussion with you. You're brave. You're strong. You can. Thanks for making us part of your story. Rate and review the Very Brave Podcast wherever you listen.